conversations. Good day, everybody, and welcome back to this Trans-Pacific episode of uh, Med Conversations. We're very lucky to have Rahul join us again. Yep, I'm back all the way from the United States. Also, when Davo says Trans-Pacific, he's not, it's not trans-specific. You can be any gender, cis or non-cis, and listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we welcome all people. Rebecca is also here, enjoying Rahul's job. Hi, drink. everyone. Uh, Rahul's actually doing an electrophysiology research project at Brigham's Hospital in uh, in the US, which is a very esteemed hospital adjoined to Harvard. So thanks very much for descending from the heavens to dispel some of your wisdom amongst us mere mortals. Anything for you guys. And I'm sitting here in my in my pajamas drinking coffee. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I'm in my pajamas as well. <laughs> halfway around the world, important. but you know, we have some similarities, even us in heaven, you know, sitting in our pajamas. <laughs> So today we're going to be talking about sarcoidosis, which is uh, was a bit of a mystery disease to me until I wrote this podcast. Um, so yeah, I hope we can share some interesting knowledge with you. Um, so let's start off with a case, as we always do uh, on our Better podcast. Elizabeth, a 27-year-old sociology major at Boston University, presents to you, her GP, with a three-week history of a cough and shortness of breath. She's a non-smoker and has no family history of any peculiar diseases. And she's currently training for the Boston Marathon and wants this fixed as soon as possible so she can get back to her training. So Dava, why don't you kick us off with a bit of a definition of sarcoidosis? So as I understand it, sarcoidosis is a multi-system inflammatory disease characterized by non-caseating granulomas. And the lungs are the most commonly affected organ, which is why respiratory physicians tend to take ownership of this disease. It's more common in Nordic and African-American populations. And in my experience, the fact that it's so common in African-American populations is particularly troublesome because, or rather, it's not just African-American, but African in general, because the differential is often tuberculosis. So in Australia, where we have a lot of African immigrants, it's usually between those two and it can be really difficult to tell. So worldwide prevalence is 20 to 60 per 100,000. So that's not uncommon. I've definitely seen a little bit of it. Mm. And what, what kind of age does it affect? So it's got a bimodal incidence. It's one of those diseases. So it uh, can occur in young people, 18 to 30, and, a, and the plus 60-year-olds as well. Yep. And so is it a genetic disease or is it a... Uh, what, what's going on? Who gets this and how? I think it's a complex situation like most diseases, but I think there's a familial form, but most cases are sporadic. Is that right, right? Yeah, that's correct. There is a familial form, but it's particularly uncommon. So going back to pathophysiology, Davo hit a buzzer beater right there uh, with the non-caseating granuloma, which is a hallmark of sarcoidosis. Um, which So let's just highlight that word for the people who just listen to us for MCQ questions. Non-caseating granuloma, remember that, equals sarcoidosis, and you can probably turn off the rest of the podcast if you like. Yeah, to be honest, that was about the depth of my knowledge until until this point in time. <laughs> so uh, just to wind back a little bit, uh, Beck, do you remember what a granuloma is? Yeah, so it's a, it's a nodule made up of a big bunch of macrophages, and if it's non-caseating, that just means that there's no central necrosis. Yeah, caseating meaning cheese-like for... That's how that's how the necrosis is described. Um, so yeah, the initial inflammation occurs through helper T cells, and HIV infected individuals with low T helper cells, as a uh, as a consequence of their HIV, rarely get sarcoid. And interestingly enough, sometimes once you give them treatment and they start getting their T helper cells back, they actually have a rise in the incidence of sarcoid. So that's a that's a 
so interesting. Yeah. Yep, yep. Crazy. It's sarcastic, but I actually genuinely think that's really interesting. <laughs> so those low, the, the T helper cells um, release cytokines like interleukin two, interferon gamma, other complicated names that uh, a chemo attract macrophages to certain areas to cause this inflammation. And it's kind of like a side side note. There are some HLA types that are associated with a lower progression to chronic disease, but definitely not something worth remembering. So case part two, you take a history from and examine Elizabeth. She was feeling well and... I just wanted to interrupt. Oh, please. I just wanted yeah, to interrupt with some other... In- <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rahul. I just wanted to say this isn't particularly relevant clinically, but it's really interesting to me. The other part of the pathophysiology that we're kind of discovering recently in research is that it might all be just a weird type of mycobacteria. So it might actually be really, really similar to tuberculosis, which is what it often mimics. Yeah, when they cut up a bunch of these people's lymph nodes, I think they find a pretty high incidence of a mic- this some strange mycobacteria, which is related to TB. So yeah, that is fascinating. Thanks for interrupting me rudely to say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so case part two. You take a history from and examine Elizabeth. Uh, she was feeling well until about three weeks ago and then suddenly found her running training increasingly difficult. She chalked that up to the Boston cold, but additionally she's had some leg pains that she also might thought to be because she's training too hard for the marathon. So you examine her and you find that she's got nothing to really hear in her heart or her lungs and her ECG is normal, which is always part of the examination. <laughs> um, she has some strange red bumps on her legs that are painful to touch and you're a little bit confused. So you order a chest x-ray to look at this dyspnea and a biopsy of her little leg bumps to see if that helps you anymore. Okay, so moving on to clinical manifestations and investigations. Sarcoid is one of those diseases that, uh, what do you call it, like a, a jack of all spades? or I don't know. It can manifest in a lot of different ways, like thyroid. Um, and so a lot of people present asymptomatic. But after that, Dava, what are the, like, some of the most common ways, common organ systems that it affects? So the most common, the number one, as we said, respiratory physician like to take care of this condition. So that makes sense that 95% of patients do have some kind of respiratory involvement. Mm-hmm. And then there's cutaneous, and that's usually very nonspecific. Then there's eye things, and then there's a bunch of other things. And we'll go into all of these in more detail, but eyes, lymph nodes, yeah. liver, hematology, any system, you name it, it's covered. Pretty much anything, yeah. But, I mean, I, pulmonary and skin are certainly the most common by far. Mm. Uh, lung is by far the most common. So let's talk about the lungs. And we uh, should also mention in- about a third of patients are asymptomatic. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think we did mention that back. Uh, but we, that's I right. like, it, let's, let's say it's a point yeah. that deserves reiteration. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, so, in 90% of people, sarcoid affects their lungs, and it comes in this sort of like benign presentation of a chronic cough or just shortness of breath. Uh, what can you hear on exam, Darvel? Often nothing, but if you do hear yeah. something, you'll hear crackles or a wheeze, or if you're really good at auscultation like me, you'll hear large lymph nodes. But there's not many people yeah. that can do that. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's this is a problem. A lot of people present with a cough, just like Elizabeth did, and then for four weeks or so, they don't get diagnosed. And yeah, so I guess it delays delays the time to treatment. Um, occasionally, once you do get pulmonary sarcoid, you can see it uh, on chest X-ray. They get what's a classic finding on chest X-ray, Beck? So that that widened hilum, so bilateral hilar adenopathy. Yeah, so that just basically means that the lymph nodes next to the hilum, which is where your main bronchi split off and where all the blood vessels enter your lungs, so right in the middle there, they get very big. 
Um, so basically a chest x-ray can show you that maybe in later disease it can show you some fibrotic type changes where everything looks a bit uh, shitty in the lungs um, but really CT is more sensitive and that will show you again the hilar lymphadenopathy peribronchial thickening so thickening around the bronchial bron- uh, yeah bronchioles yep. Yep, that's the one uh, sub that's that's the one that needed explaining um, subpleural reticular nodular changes which basically subpleural means just near the pleura so on the outside of the lungs reticular nodular means like looks kind of like sticks and you, you can um, kind of stage sarcoid based on how much of this stuff it has so stage one is when it's just hilar lymphadenopathy and then it goes all the way up to stage four which you can imagine is when they've got everything they've got all the fibrotic changes as well mm. so if yeah you... so sarcoid is a it's a is a cause of a fibrotic lung yeah. disease uh, which i guess what i was alluding to there mm. so what does it show on pulmonary function tests so, yeah, given that it is a fibrotic lung disease or an interstitial lung disease, um, you get reduced lung volume, so it can't, it's all fibrosed, it can't stretch out as much. And they also get impaired DLCO, which is the how easy the carbon monoxide transfers across the uh, lung barrier. So that, the that's the barrier. most sensitive thing you see on, on respiratory function testing. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it does, sarcoid's not one to be pigeonholed though, and you can get a obstructive picture as well, which is where you get a low FEV1 to FVC ratio. So yeah, it, it can move around. So let's talk about, let's talk about cutaneous sarcoid, Beck. So this is the second most common I mean, manifestation. You talk about cutaneous sarcoid, Beck. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I know two words and that's all. So I'm just going to say my two words and you can explain the rest of it. Erythema nodosum. Nice two words. Yeah. If you're going to pick yeah, two words on cutaneous right. sarcoid, they'd be the ones I'd say. But apparently not, actually. Those are two words. Yeah, no, probably not. But those are two words that like are generally good to know as a medical student because erythema nodosum comes up a few different times. So they're, do you know what they are, Davil? So they're these tender red nodules on the shins. Yep, that's correct. Um, and so you can see them not only in sarcoid but in... Uh, tuberculosis in IBD, um, a few other diseases. So they're not not super specific, but they can happen in sarcoid. Um, what else uh, can you see in the skin, Davo? So you can often get these macular papular lesions, which are often not painful, but they can slowly infiltrate large areas of skin. And an interesting thing of these uh, macular papular lesions, they often occur where you've had scars before. Hmm. And just for those of you who can't quite remember, macular papilla essentially means bumpy and splotchy. That's an easy way to remember it. There are actual definitions, but it's nice and easy. It's kind of what people say when they don't know what the what the hell a rash is. Um, I used to say macular and... erythematous rash, just to cover everything. Yeah, exactly. Just put all the words in there. Um, there's hyper and hypopigmentation as well, just changing the skin color. Keloid, where you get that really bulging over sort of scarring on your skin, mm. and subcutaneous nodules. So... Um, all of this is pretty non-specific, but there is one thing called lupus pernio, confusingly named lupus, but it has nothing to do with lupus, the disease, uh, which is a specific type of skin manifestation where they get like this red rash over their nose uh, and just underneath their eyes uh, and around just above their mouth. And that is actually diagnostic for a chronic form of sarcoidosis. You don't need to do anything more. So it looks a um, lot like a malar rash in that you get SLE, in systemic right? lupus, like yeah. the butterfly rash. But the, the, the right, key yeah. difference is that it involves the nasolabial fold, which is classically spared in SLE. That's that line that runs down from the corners of your nose to the corners of your mouth mm. that uh, Obama has a really prominent, <laughs> prominent set of. He does, um, doesn't he? Yeah. 
He does, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you can biopsy these macular papular lesions. It's usually a pretty good place to biopsy, and we'll talk about that more later, but that'll usually demonstrate a typical sarcoid appearance on, under the microscope. So oh, moving on, cool. so what comes in at... What gets the honorable bronze medal, Beck? So that would be the ocular parts of sarcoid. And it sounds like... Yeah, it'll... This, um, this is a little bit racist. So people who have sarcoidosis are more likely to have ocular sarcoid depending on their race so 70 percent of japanese people get ocular disease but only 30 percent of americans i don't know where the other races fit in there i don't know if facts are racist beck but uh why was that racist <laughs> i was waiting for something a lot worse that's just epidemiology that. but don't worry yeah. you don't have to self-flagellate yourself i don't want to be racist <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah so ocular sarcoid can present as basically a red eye with photophobia you know painful to light blurred vision and increased hearing and these are all signs of many diseases but anterior uveitis inflammation in the anterior section of the eye Um, and sometimes they can get it in the posterior section like around the retina and the pars planitis but um, normally in the anterior part and essentially this can lead to blindness if it remains untreated so all patients should be examined who have this type of sarcoid should be examined by an ophthalmologist with a slit lamp particularly if they're symptomatic they should be examined soon so i, I, um, I did a short case this week on a, on a patient with ocular sarcoid and some other manifestations as well i was doing it in front of the head of neurology which is obviously someone i want to impress at this point in my career and I just had no idea what was wrong with his eyes. Like, they just had these crazy pupils. Like, they were, there was anisocoria. Like, one was way bigger than the other one. And one of them had this, like, crazy, like, teardrop shape. And uh, the penny did not drop for some time that he'd actually had anterior uveitis, which was uh, why... The old Senechii due to anterior yeah, uveitis. Exactly. Eh? Yeah, exactly. His pupils were non-reactive. I was like, is this guy dead? But he's talking to me. It's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Am I crazy? Am I dead? <laughs> Six said stuff going on there, man. Um, all right, cool. So next, uh, this is where it starts to get down into the dregs. I mean, these these organs are still important in sarcoid, but you don't see them as common. So hepatic sarcoidosis affecting the liver. Only 20 to 30% have abnormal liver function tests. So one third have abnormal liver function tests, but half of them, if you actually took a biopsy of their liver, have granulomas, sarcoid granulomas in there. So uh, the symptoms, if they do ever get symptoms from hepatic sarcoidosis, arise from essentially these granulomas causing pressure uh, on the function, on all the bile ducts inside the liver, which eventually causes scarring and damage to the liver, and they get ascites, portal hypertension, and all everything that comes with it, you name it. So, um, But the important thing about hepatic sarcoid, Davo, is what? bad <laughs> that even That's even if it's even it. if it's really really bad then that you can make it better because they respond to therapy not so bad is that right oh, that's cool thank, nice thank god we have beck on this show yeah, i'll tell you what <laughs> i had to do this with alone. <laughs> i've killed myself a while ago um so moving on to hematological stuff uh Davo, you're a nerd why don't you tell us about hematology <laughs> um so you can have sarcoid in the bone marrow much like you can have it in other parts of the body and that creates problems. So it can have some lymphopenia because of that. And that's also partially due to sequestration of lymphocytes in the spleen and other and the other areas of inflammation. 20% of people uh, develop anemia. One third of people have granulomas in their bone marrow. And 60% have granulomas in the spleen on biopsy. But th- this is not a major, you know, major part of sarcoid. No, it's it's something to be aware of, but not really major. But what is a major part of sarcoid, at least kind of important, is calcium metabolism. So 
Weirdly enough, sarcoid affects the amount of calcium you have in your body, so they get hypercalcemic and hypercalciuric, so a lot of calcium in their blood and urine. I was about to say semen. That is not correct. <laughs> um, and that occurs in about one-tenth of sarcoid patients. Uh, and this is it's kind of interesting. Why, why does that happen? So it all comes down to vitamin D, basically. So these granulomas are made up of macrophages, and they produce a whole bunch of vitamin D, which pu- pushes your, your calcium up. So when you get someone that comes in with hypercalcemia and a suppressed parathyroid hormone and they don't have a malignancy, this is definitely one of the things you think about. Very interestingly, though, their vitamin D is actually low, almost universally. So this is uh, vitamin D before it's become hydroxylated in the kidney. It's almost universally low in sarcoidosis. And the 125, the hydroxylated version of vitamin D, is sufficient in 70%. So I'd expect it to be high but for some reason it's either low or sufficient i don't think anyone understands yeah, I mean, that it's a lot easier to call it calcitriol and cholecalciferol than it is to call it 125 but i think that i think the in molecular structures rahul so it's for people who are kind yes, of like bamboozled by what just happened essentially <laughs> the granulomas cause an increase in calcitriol and calcitriol causes you to increase your intestinal absorption of calcium and also renal reabsorption of calcium. So your serum calcium goes up. But then, bo- when, you, um, but then when you do a blood test for vitamin D, what you're looking for is um, cholecalciferol, yeah. not calcitriol, and that's why it's low. I feel like we've really confused a whole yeah. bunch of people. I just want to summarize quickly. So you get hypercalcemia right <laughs> in sarcoidosis, and that's due to vitamin D, but they have low vitamin D levels. Can I just summarize yeah. the summary of the summary? <laughs> <laughs> or we'll cut, it it, we'll cut our sense. losses. Think about it, so man. So how, okay. how do we work out, like let's say someone's got renal calculi, what test should we be doing? Yeah, so you can do a 24-hour urine calcium. So you just collect their urine for 24 hours like you're some sort of perverted stalker freak. And um, yeah, if they've got a high 24-hour urine calcium, there are certain therapies. I think they use... Uh, thiazides, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, you can give them therapies to um, to sort of decrease the amount of calcium that's being excreted. So there you go. Um, Let's move on to something we all enjoy a little bit more, neurologic sarcoid. Mm. My favorite. Mm. I love neurology. Uh, Yeah, so tell us, you tell us about it. You're the the neuro guy, the brain guy. So the classic presentation, the MCQ fodder question for sarcoid is, is that it can affect the cranial nerve, so particularly cranial nerve 7. So they get facial droops. So in someone where there's no other cause, so that you don't think they have bells, they don't have a tumor, this is definitely something you think about. And this was actually the case in that short that I was looking at. I was so distracted by his pupils, but then I saw that he had this big whopping facial, facial droop and it all made a little bit more sense. Hmm. That's when it fell back into Davos' familiar territory. But it's important to know that it can also affect anywhere else. So it can also affect the spinal cord, your hypothalamus, and cause diabetes insipidus, optic neuritis. So it's a bit difficult. And you could, one of the ways you can sort of work this out is you can do an MRI with gadolinium enhancement. But even then, the granulomas can be so small that you can't see them. Your CSF isn't super helpful. So ultimately, really, if you've got these neurological symptoms, you've got to kind of bank on having something in your lungs or your skin that you can tie it all together with or it becomes very difficult um, because obviously taking a biopsy of these areas is also incredibly difficult sounds good all right let's move on to another organ called the heart (laughs) the old ticker 
Um, so I'll, I'll take the liberty of talking about this one. This is another one that's quite a racist uh, form of sarcoid. It affects 25%. Yeah, sort of not a pleasant disease. Really a disease of the 1800s. It was acceptable <laughs> back then. You can't blame it, but has not caught up to society. Um, so it's influenced by race. 25% of people from Japan versus only 5% of you American people get cardiac sarcoidosis. But actually, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm doing a study in cardiac sarcoid right now, but I see cardiac sarcoid <laughs> Maybe it's time. because you visit the cardiac <laughs> sarcoid floor of the cardiology hospital you go to, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why. The rest, so, yeah, it presents in sort of two ways. You've either got cardiac arrhythmias or heart failure. The heart failure, basically, you get sarcoid lesions inside your heart and it affects the pumping function of your heart. That's responsive to steroid therapy, so that's all good. You know, but people can go all the way down to like an ejection fraction of 10%. Normal is 55, and they can still recover with steroid therapy. But the arrhythmias, so getting either bradyrrhythmia, like heart block, um, or getting something like ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, that stuff doesn't really respond that well to systemic steroids. I mean, the jury's still a bit out on exactly what effect it has, but yeah, the sort of consensus is that most of these people would warrant uh, an implantable cardiovascular mm-hmm. defibrillator to prevent sudden death. All right, so I think it's probably around time that we gave a bit of a summary. Um, what do you remember? What do I remember? Sarcoid is a disease that's really bad because... Good. All right, I might is- take it from here then. So so the key things for you to remember are there's non-caseating granulomas. If you're a medical student, just remember lungs. The rest doesn't really matter. That's the most common thing. Uh, do you remember what the distribution is in age? Who gets it? What age? So it's bimodal. So yeah. people that are 15 to 30 or over 60s. Yeah, so I just think 20s and 60s. And pathophysiology, the key bit here is helper T-cells are somehow implicated. In terms of how it presents, respiratory is your number one in more than 90% of people. So the key bits here are hyalolymphadenopathy and decreased DLCO. Obviously, these aren't symptoms. They're things that you find on tests, but hey, we love tests. Mm. Cutaneous manifestations. Erythema nodosum is your classic medical student banger for any any question, really. Uh, yeah, you said um, it. But it's pretty, non, it's pretty non-specific. <laughs> the specific one is maculopapula and another fun buzzword to learn, probably more for BPT rather than um, medical student things, is lupus perneo, which is a malar rash that kind of looks like lupus but is not. Then we've got eyes, anterior uveitis and red eye, and the, the other key thing is calcium. So calcium levels go up and that's all i've retained from the last half an hour i don't know about anybody else that's what's the neurological classic neurological complication yeah and you've got the heart nah, and then i can't remember it <laughs> there's some things with brain and heart yeah yeah what is the classic neurological complication facial nerve palsy what's the classic cardiological complication rahul uh but <laughs> um you get heart failure or you get some sort of arrhythmia slow or fast all right brilliant Cool. All right. So what happened to Elizabeth? So her biopsy that you remember, obviously, because you did it, you took it from her shin, uh, comes back as erythema nodosum characteristics. And you get a chest x-ray which shows bilaterally bulky hilar regions in the lungs. So you refer Elizabeth to a respiratory physician who says he will order a, oh, sorry, a pulmonologist. <laughs> I didn't realize I was on this side of the Pacific, who says he will order pulmonologist. a pulmonologist. <laughs> pulmonology. Um, he'll order a CT chest, biopsy the hilar lymph nodes and send off serum, ACE and calcium. So let's talk about those investigations. 
So what's a, what's a good investigation to start with, Davor? Davoris? I typically start with a pet scan. <laughs> <laughs> good, you're learning so the American way fast. Be. Yeah. <laughs> A chest x-ray is a much more sensible starting test. Yeah. And so if you see, I mean, again, you might not see anything on the chest x-ray, but you might see that bulky uh, lymph nodes. And then from there, uh, Rebecca? Uh, So if we're talking about imaging first, um, I'd probably go on to a CT scan. Mm. Pretty high yield most of the time. So you can see that hilar lymphadenopathy. You might see some interstitial or or bronchial lung disease. So that was the case with this neurosarcoid we saw this week. His chest x-ray was pristine, but then he had really bulky lymph nodes that you could see pretty well on CT. So it makes quite a big difference. Yeah, I might also also interjaculate at that point, at this juncture as well, to say that uh, I guess a lot of this imaging depends on what the person's presenting with and your degree of suspicion. So it actually wouldn't be unreasonable to do say a pet scan if someone came in with you know lupus pernio and some sort of heart condition like an arrhythmia i think that's unreasonable yeah well Darvo might think it's <laughs> to do it as your first as test a starting, <laughs> as a starting yeah i mean if they've maybe. got diagnosed sarcoid and you you'll have one question which is like is it affecting the heart then you do a pet scan i mean that, that's completely reasonable um rather than doing a chest x-ray and be like oh would you look at that exactly but yeah so All right, when would you when would you do an MRI? Uh, so MRI is actually pretty good for a lot of places, uh, particularly mainly the nerves and the heart. But it can, late gadolinium Hansen, so gadolinium is a contrast agent you can give with MRI, which hangs around in damaged tissue because it just gets stuck there. Uh, it can show you scarred or sort of uh, areas that have had old granulomas in them. Um, uh, PET scanning is sort of a similar sort of thing, except that it shows you places of activity, so current inflammatory activity. So it's good to know if you have active sarcoid lesions somewhere. Um, and then the thing to keep in mind is that cancer can look like a lot of these things, particularly on the PET scan. So you might need to biopsy this stuff um, just to actually clinch your diagnosis of sarcoid. Now, Rebecca, mm-hmm. I believe you had aspirations of being a pathologist at some point in time. So why don't you tell us about what sort of blood tests I can order? <laughs> I can frivolously order on patients. Well, look, I had a consultant who I was working for recently who wanted us to order a serum ACE on anyone whose calcium was over 2.1. Uh, yet to see a positive, but I've actually learned recently that it's got a really low sensitivity and specificity. So it's a pretty useless test as far as acronyms go. The old ACE is not particularly helpful. Yeah. I think it might be like slightly confirmatory if you have lots of other reasons to suspect sarcoid, but in genuine diagnostic dilemmas when you don't know where this infiltrating disease comes from, ordering an ACE, if it's positive or negative, won't really help you all that much. Yeah, so it just adds weight to a diagnosis. Like, you know, we have the serum ACE and he has these other features and we can't think of anything else, so maybe Mm. it's sarcoid. Um, Which brings us to number five, making the diagnosis. How do we clinch it? Um, Mm. So it relies on both clinical features, pathological findings. And one of the things that I've actually noticed looking, hanging around the cardiac sarcoid floor of my hospital um, is that (laughs) actually a lot of these people sort of hang in the balance of like, "Ah, we don't know for quite a long time, potentially forever. And especially if it ends up remitting, if it ends up going away, which happens in half the people who get sarcoid, then... Really? Yeah. Mm, they're often spontaneously remits. Yeah, within two years. That's an important point, actually. Yeah, we should. And that's why... I didn't know that. When we get to treatment, that's why you don't treat everyone aggressively yeah, you don't get so much away. so yeah a lot of these people kind of like maybe he does maybe he doesn't let's do some things until we find out a bit later and it might never might, you might never find out so like, again coming back to the serum ace it might just be a thing that sort of pushes you to the maybe he does side of things but um 
Yeah, mm. making the diagnosis is usually one of those classic symptoms we talked about, or not so classic symptoms, plus a biopsy showing non-caseating granulomas. So that's in a, in a typical sort of area. Uh, what's a place you typically diagnose, Darva? What do you reckon the most commonly diagnosed area is for the? For... So I think I think usually the hyalur lymph nodes. So you go in with a bronchoscopy and just uh, take some take some of the hyalur lymph nodes out. Yeah, that's right. You stick a needle through and take some of that. Um, and once the biopsy is taken, you've got to remember to not only sort of send it under the microscope, you've also got to culture it and look for malignancy um, because mm. those are things that can pose a sarcoid or be um, differential diagnosis. As we said before, tuberculosis in particular. That's, it's always tuberculosis versus sarcoid. And it's really important to differentiate between the two because if someone's got TB and then you start them on heavy immunosuppression <laughs> for sarcoid, it's no good. It's game, <laughs> game over for your medical career. Please try again next time. Um, so Lofgren syndrome, Darla, tell me why that's going to make me sound smart in front of my consultant. I feel like I need a cowbell or something for this. But like this is another MCQ thing. I need an MCQ cowbell. This is like physician MCQ, be the, by the way, BTW, be the W. Um, so if you're a medical student, please don't try and commit this to memory. It might cause your brain. Fingers in your ears humming a song at the moment. <laughs> no, no, it's not that irrelevant. Uh, here we go. Here it comes Mr. <laughs> the genius over here. So Lerfgren syndrome is a particular uh, constellation of manifestations where they get erythema nodosum, migrating arthralgias, fever and bilateral bulky lymph nodes so actually our our patient may have this Mm. and she and it's almost always happens in young women and the interesting thing about it is that almost always self-resolve so you don't have to do much apart from give some non-steroidals for symptomatic management so it's a classic mcq trap if you if you know that you'll get that right but everyone else that's kind of operating on first principles are like this is sarcoid with like four different manifestations i better get out the infliximab and steroids but that's the wrong answer just give them some non-steroidals and you don't even need to biopsy in them in this kind of situation if someone comes in with this particular constellation of symptoms it's so specific for lerfgren syndromes you don't have to worry about further investigation so again that's erythema nodosum or bumpy nodules on your red nodules on your shins migrating arthralgias so joint pains that move all around fever and bilateral bulky lymph nodes all right so good old beth uh what happened to her yeah so a few months down the track she comes to see you again and she has an accompanying letter from her respiratory physician that declares that he feels strongly that elizabeth has acute sarcoidosis affecting her hilar lymph nodes lungs and skin he is asked to see her back again in six months with a CT of her chest, and he asks you to refer her back to him if she develops any more problems that you're concerned about. So it's Elizabeth disappointing comes. Disappointing that he went on feeling rather than true like clinical evidence. But that aside, yeah, the feelings feelings pretty strong, mate. Don't ignore your intuitions. He's a he's a specialist. He's <laughs> yeah. Special. Um, so Elizabeth today tells you that she's been feeling faint and falling over very suddenly whilst training for the marathon, probably. I don't know if that's already happened or not. Probably has because a few months down the track now. Um, so <laughs> the ECG shows that she's currently in 2 to 1 AV block. And after a cardiac okay. MRI, which somehow you ordered as a GP, demonstrates LG and rejection <laughs> fraction of 40%. The cardiologist so LGE, late oh. gadolinium enhancement. Yeah, I'm just going to skate over that. <laughs> yeah, Everyone knows that. Wow. Scarring, scarring in her ventricles uh, and an ejection fraction of 40%. Remember the normal is 55. Her cardiologist, which again, she's somehow gotten in between coming to see you, uh, commences she's her She's got good on... health insurance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, she's well, she's at the cardiac. On... She's at the sarcoid center, right? So she just kind of went to the next <laughs> <right>. room. <laughs> the cardiac sarcoid center. Um <laughs> 
So it starts Elizabeth on steroids, prednisolone, 30 milligrams a day, with a plan to taper to ten, less than 10 milligrams a day in six months. I like that the cardiologist has done this as well without, without informing the respiratory physician. But uh, <laughs> that's pesky Speaking cardiologist. of GPs and sarcoid, this, this guy that we had this week with a neurosarcoid, the GP diagnosed it. That's he, awesome. Yeah, he was like, he noticed the anterior uveitis. And then ordered an MRI brain to look for sarcoid infiltration of the facial nerve and diagnose it. And then just sent it to the neurology and was like, ah, I've done the hard work. You can start them on steroids. What a boss. Pretty impressive. What a damn boss. That's really impressive. Yeah. That's... I really want his name. I want him to be my GP. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. We've been going for 32 minutes. I think it's probably about time we talked about treatment. We've kind of implied a lot of things. Um, <laughs> it's the implication. How do you treat it? Uh, so the decision to treat is basically broken up into whether or not it's affecting your organs or threatening your life. Um, so for example, people who have asymptomatic LFT derangement or chest x-ray abnormalities probably don't benefit from treatment, but just keeping an eye on them a bit like our respiratory man did wanted to do with Elizabeth. Uh, and the reason again for that is that a lot of these people relapse and all these drugs have side effects. But otherwise, if you are going to treat someone... When you say relapse, you mean remit. I say remit. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's definitely what I meant. Um, Lesson number one, you don't have to treat all sarcoid. Correct. Um, But how would you divide them in terms of thinking about treatment, Davo? If I had a gun to your head right now and said, if you don't divide sarcoid into two treatable groups, (laughs) I'm going to blow your brains out. What would you do? (laughs) Acute disease and chronic disease would be safe, I think. Yep, that's, you're not dead yet. Um, so <laughs> the treatment begins with steroids, um, but sometimes steroid sparing therapy is needed for long-term, high-dose, ineffective situations. And essentially what we were talking about with that acute and chronic thing is that if you're acute, so fresh sarcoid, minimal to no symptoms, affecting an organ that no one really cares about, i.e. not the brain, heart, eyes, or calcium abnormalities, then you can just observe them and see what happens, um, so particularly if they're asymptomatic. If you've got single organ disease that's now getting symptomatic and it's getting problematic, then the idea is to get some steroids into them. Uh, ideally, if it's let's say it's only affecting the skin or the lungs or the eye, then ideally you want to like keep those steroids topical. So that doesn't mean up to date and present with the moment. That means getting them to an area where only they're only affecting that organ. So, uh, <laughs> you like that one, Beck? Sorry, <laughs> um, it was a bit of a delayed. um yeah so for like lungs what sort of therapy would be topical back uh inhalers yep that's right just like corticosteroid inhalers and then for skin obviously just creams eyes eye drop Um, but unfortunately if you've got something that's like single organ in the heart single organ in the brain then you've got to go to some systemic therapy so you start with like a prednisolone Mm. like this cardiologist did um, usually at reasonably high doses and then the idea is to taper them down within six months to less than 10 milligrams a day and it's, and really, it's, re- it's a really steroid responsive disease. It just melts away. So like we give steroids for a lot of things or it doesn't really work that well because we have to do something. But in, in sarcoid, it really is very steroid responsive. Yeah. And I believe Beck had a question before you rudely interrupted her. Um, Sorry. Beck, <laughs> I had a simultaneous interruption. But, <laughs> but you said, so, so you've said it's very steroid responsive, but you should try to taper them down to less than 10 milligrams in six months. But what if... You try to do that and and then the disease comes back. Yeah. So, I mean, if you taper it and, the, you, you know, the disease is relapsing or if they're getting problems with glucocorticoids, which we all know are very common, like diabetes, blood pressure or bone density problems, then you really want to try a steroid sparing agent. So the most effective one is typically methotrexate, 
um, which is an anti-folate drug uh, to fix the microtubules in the cells. But the immigration also... police are coming for you, Rahul. Yeah. <laughs> can you hear that? Oh, yeah. Did the police yeah, sirens yeah, in America, that. especially when you live in the ghetto, are super loud. Um, but, yeah, so there's methotrexate. Other anti-inflammatories that spare you from the steroids are hydroxychloroquine or azathioprine. Uh, but definitely methotrexate has the best evidence. And then, so that's that's acute sarcoid. So basically, you know, if it's really affecting something, an organ, then you get in there with steroids and you try and suppress it early. But what happens when you move to sort of chronic diabola, so more than six months? So then you really need to try those second-line agents is my understanding. Yeah. So if you're below 10 milligrams a day and it's keeping everything pretty gravy, you could probably just continue with that if they're not getting too many side effects. But like pretty much in a lot of these people, I think they end up getting either side effects or the disease starts to sort of fight back below before you get to below 10. So then you start again with those same things, methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, azathioprine, mycophenolate, all of these anti-inflammatory drugs that work in weird and specific ways. But if they're not effective, then you've got some heavy hitting stuff. So Beck, what sort of heavy hitting stuff do you know of? So you could go with some monoclonal antibodies like infliximab. Um, cyclophosphamide or thalidomide would also be something you might think about giving a shot. Yeah. yeah. You so basically just start start getting the immunosuppressive kitchen sink and throwing it at them. That's my yeah, understanding. Yeah, exactly. I've had, <laughs> I've, had to, I've had to write some very annoying and painful letters to drug companies begging for various monoclonal drugs for neurosarcoid because apparently that's often quite resistant to disease. Oh, really? Neurosarcoid in particular. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. So just to summarize treatment, essentially early stages, consider just watching and waiting. Um, if it's getting worse and threatening an organ, then you probably want to get steroids into them somehow in the acute phase. And then as things shift over to the more chronic phase, then you want to try and keep them on steroids, but often you can't and you've got to start using steroid sparing agents like azathioprine, hydroxychloroquine. Um, but the key here is just monitoring the effect it's having on the organ because the question is always like, is whatever's happening to the organ worse than me giving this person immunosuppression long-term? Mm. So, yeah. yeah, that is a good question to ask. Yeah. All right, great. Well, great to catch up with you. Yeah. Um, always love good catch-up talking about a life-threatening disease. Mm. Yeah, I'll tell you what, um, my, my voice is should... hoarse from yelling over the Pacific, but I think we made it work. <laughs> <laughs> should, we leave, should we leave everyone with a few take-home points? Yep. Yeah. Uh, there was a bit of a hesitation there. I reckon it's a good idea, though. So, sarcoidosis, non-caseating granulomas, most commonly affects the lungs, affects a bunch of other places. You should do a calcium, might want to do a serum ACE, but definitely a chest X-ray or maybe a CT. PET scans, MRIs all have a role as well. Um, treatment, we've just talked about, start with start with nothing. If you need something, try steroids. If you need steroid spar- sparing therapy, go to that. Um, but generally, it's a disease that, that will often uh, get better all by itself. It's not a lifelong condition in everyone. And um, I think that's probably the I want to say congratulations to making it to the end of the podcast if you're still listening to this because that would have yeah, been a tough one to awesome. listen to. But uh, we've been getting some great <laughs> feedback on, <laughs> on Facebook from people asking, demanding even, demanding episodes <laughs> of us. So we will be working on a stroke episode and potentially a long case episode sometime in the near future as Maybe. was requested. So, yeah. But uh, keep up the feedback. It makes us feel good about ourselves. It makes something I can tell my girlfriend to, you know, keep her away from leaving me all alone by myself in this world so yeah keep it up please it really has a big effect on my life <laughs> oh, i think i can see an axe going through your door back there rahul <laughs> i would run and hide and um, i don't want to be implicated in any kind of illegal activity so <laughs> off we go 
What? Right. I, I don't know. I don't know. I laughed. I don't, I don't know, know what the relevance exactly of that is to anything. <laughs> I'm kind of for it. It's ice, Raul. Ice, so the immigration agents. Are kind oh, of okay. We're going back to the sirens. Yeah. Throwback joke. Yeah, nice, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hopefully, someone listening understood that. Yeah. All right. I think this is probably a good point to wrap it up. Thanks for listening. Leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, no one's yet done that, I don't believe. <laughs> uh, I've done it from a bunch I, of my I, friends' accounts. I feel so like if you're still listening fun. now, you must like us at least. Yeah, a there's something bit. about it. <laughs> and you could probably write a review. All right, guys. We'll, uh, Thanks. Bye. Thanks, bye.